Welcome back, my friends, to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. This is episode 100. We are finally here, three plus years in the making, countless remarkable guests on the show. Hopefully you were able to listen to last week's episode 99, where we did a bit of a recap on how we got here. But I am overjoyed to share with you uh, a special thing for episode 100. I've been dreaming up and scheming, trying to figure out what to do for a little while. And what I decided to do end of 2020 was to put together a panel of people to discuss the intersection of Jesus and trauma. That seemed to be the main through line running through all of the podcast to date. And so I reached out to a handful of people and and I got a remarkable panel assembled of thinkers, feelers, writers, doctors, scientists, and, uh, and I can't wait for you to listen to this. So I had some questions for each one, and I had, you know, this theme of Jesus and trauma. But what you'll hear, because of the vulnerability and the authenticity from each person, is that the conversation swings in really interesting ways with each new voice. And by the end, we've had a really rich discussion about understanding ourselves, understanding the breakdown of systems, uh, how we have become broken, and how we might heal all surrounding uh, themes of love, topics of psychology, neurology, culture, theology, colonialism, institutional structures, diversity. Uh, It's wonderful. So without further ado, I will hand you over to my recording. This is part one, and next week we will cover part two. All right, well, guys, I'm so excited to introduce each of you to this panel today. Many of them will already be known to many of you. I do selfishly feel like I have assembled the most excellent team of experts in for this discussion today on Jesus and trauma. I'm humbled and honored to get to spend time with each of these people, and I'm excited to share them all with you. So I'm going to just give some quick introductions to each one, and then we'll dive right into it. So uh, Mr. Paul Young, thank you for joining us today. Uh, For those who somehow don't know, Paul Young is the author of a little book called The Shack. He (laughs) was born in Canada, I believe, right? Uh, And then raised in a Stone Age tribe uh, in what do we call now? In it's Papua, West Papua, West mostly. Papua, that's right. Most people refer to it West Papua. And now Paul lives in the Pacific Northwest. We did an interview, I think it was 2018, on on this show about love and grace and the U word. And that remains my most popular episode by far, by like an oh, order wow. of magnitude. And people constantly write to me and say, "You, your discussion with Paul gave me hope in uh, God, gave me hope in men, gave me hope in humanity. Um, So uh, to me, Paul, you're like a theological storyteller who understands both trauma and and restoration and healing. So thank you. uh, Thrilled to have you with us today. Ah. Anything you would add about yourself? I'm married uh, to Kim for almost 41 years. Uh, which is a miracle. I mean, she saved my life and uh, 
have uh, six kids, uh, 12 grands and two on the way right now, all 13 years old and under. And one of the big absences of COVID is not being able to have direct and constant contact because uh, um, nine of them live within 15 minutes. So, mm. so close, but so far. Yeah, exactly. Thank Honored you. to be here, by the way. Your podcast comment just just means that there's a, a lot of people out there as screwed up as me. <laughs> Love the company. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Dr. Allison Cook is uh, my next panelist. Allison is a counselor, a speaker, and writer. Allison ha has one of those Instagram accounts that like you need to be following because she like keeps me alive and keeps me sane. And uh, and she's actually like this incredibly fascinating mixture of a person. She used to work on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. as a congressional aide. She's been involved in stage acting. She used to be a teacher. She holds a PhD in religion and psychology, and she could be called and has been called and is often referred to as a psychologist of religion. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm very thrilled. When I was thinking Jesus and trauma, your name was pretty much at the top of my list for professional input. So I'm so thankful that you're here, Allison. Anything you'd add about yourself? Well, I'm just thrilled to be here. I can feel um, emotion welling up in me already. I I, I, I kind of get the sense this is the way this group is going to go. There's just something really special about gathering with other people in this area. It's meaningful, rich work. And my professional work came out of my own personal search. Um, so when I'm writing, I'm writing from my own experience, um, as I, I believe most of you are as well, right? We don't have all the answers. We're in the process of discovering ourselves and discovering God and healing ourselves in new ways. So um, I'm thrilled to be here with you all. Wonderful. Up next, I'll introduce Dr. Jerome D. Libba. Jerome is like this six foot tall gentle giant uh, who I just like, I don't know, man. I don't know. I hope this is as mutual, but I felt like we hit it off like best bros. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> Jerome's born in Africa. He moved to the States as a teenager. He's experienced uh, significant tragedy and trauma in his own life and then went to work to find solutions for his health issues that he wasn't finding solutions for. So today, Jerome's a functional neurologist. He works with people treating brain injuries, degenerative disorders, and so on. Uh, and Jerome, obviously, he does this medical work. Jerome also writes and researches in the realm of neurological theology. His work in the Enneagram, marrying brain science to the Enneagram, is pretty much undone in the rest of the Enneagram community and is brilliant. Uh, and we did an interview all essentially all on the psychology of Jesus. And again, it was a hugely well-received show. So thrilled to have you back, Jerome. What, anything you'd add about, your, about yourself? I just want to be the rest of these panelists when I grow up, honestly. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's amazing to be. I always, you know, I, I'm kind of like Allison. I feel the emotion well up. And I'm like, you know, honestly, the first thing that came to mind is how much has gone into the last 20 years for somebody to be able to read what you just read and go, 
yeah, that, that is actually true. Wow. That's, it's just that, that hit me. And I think also um, it's been a sweet day because I started my sabbatical uh, yesterday for the month of December and I'm not good at rest. It's not my thing. I'll, we'll talk about that today. So I've had to proactively pursue it. And I had the best ride with my son. He allowed me to get him up early to leave Atlanta to get to Florida. And we made it with five minutes to spare for this podcast. And it was just so sweet. I've got three kids that are five and under. And I got to spend the ride with my five-year-old and he's five going on 15. He's just so sweet and so sharp. And he gets it all from his mom. Um, but it's really, it was just fun to start the day off with him and then to join you guys. I'm, I'm really honored and humbled to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Jerome. And last, but by no means least, Amita Mansory Richardson is my newest friend, probably in the whole world. I can't think of anyone that I've met since I met you yesterday. True story. I had another friend who was scheduled to be on the panel and she needed to pull out for various reasons. And she said to me, Jonathan, I'd like to introduce you to my friend Amita, who is uh, going to be a better panelist in every single way. Uh, her and I will discuss that issue later, but Amita is incredible. I have been reading and listening and learning already uh, for the last like 24 hours. Amita was born in uh, Nigeria, correct me if I'm wrong, to Christian Muslim parents, uh, grew up in Ghana and Togo before moving to Toronto. She has a master's degrees in theology and public health. She has an undergrad in uh, microbiology, is that correct? Amita, if you're already going like, whoa, this woman, she is a researcher. Uh, she works in a number of different fields, especially community-based health solutions for children and youth. She leads multiple nonprofits, and uh, she happens to be a mom to five boys. So mad respect. Amita, anything you would add about yourself? Wow. Thank you for, for reminding me of my, of my story. Um, I always get chills when people remind me that my dust is drawn from the continent of Africa, um, especially during the times when not only am I not home, but it's not necessarily the wisest decision to, to be getting on planes as often as I used to, to go home. Um, but I am well grounded in Toronto with um, my life partner, Jen Richardson, and our five rambunctious uh, little humans. And um, my, my work in the um, theological space, looking at liberation theology, I think is going to inform um, some of what, what I say here. Um, so if there's anything that, uh, that I would add is that I am, I am a recalcitrant PhD candidate at the University of Toronto studying liberation theology when they let me in on the peace building. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, everybody. And let's dive right in. First question is for Allison. In my own theology work, uh, as I teach on a nonviolent God who uh, didn't need to be paid off, but restores and redeems us out of his own loving desire for us, I get a lot of pushback that the God I present is not angry enough, not retributive enough. And the strongest pushback seems to come from people who, to my understanding and to their own admission in some cases, have, are also people who've experienced intense trauma themselves. In some cases, uh, victims of, of very severe uh, abuse and injustice. To my non-professional but observant mind, it seems 
that in some cases, those who've been victims of certain kinds of injustice need to see God as angry and ready to defend, ready to punish wrongdoers because they have been victims of wrongdoing. I know that that is my own summation and judgment of others, uh, and it's perhaps not entirely fair or accurate, but it's currently the lens I have for understanding some of the pushback that I get. Can you speak to uh, generally how experiencing trauma, abuse, and so on shapes our minds, shapes who we are as people, and, and possibly influences our theology? Sure. Yeah. And that's a really brilliant insight, uh, by the way, that you just shared. And there's a million directions we could go with that. But I, I tend to look through the lens of um, this model of therapy called internal family systems. And if you're familiar with it, but but I won't go into the details. But the idea is that we have these tender, vulnerable parts of us, every single one of us, that when they get wounded, we tend to push them deeper into our psyche, deeper into our soul. We don't want, we don't know. Oftentimes it happens as children, right? We don't know how to deal with that wound. And so those, those, and I'll let the others, the, the, I I can speak a little bit to the brain science on this, but I'm going to defer that to the other experts on the panel who know that way better than I do. But this, this actually happens in the brain. And so what happens is we develop these protective strategies um, and and they're not bad. They're 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 important. They're survival. They're I've got to protect myself. The deeper the wound, the deeper the vulnerability, the more the hurt, the more the crushed spirit. Sometimes the bigger, out of necessity, the response, the protective strategies become. And in IFS, they call this the managers. The the second category, the firefighters. The managers are. I'm not going to let anyone hurt me anymore. And that could come through being angry. That could come through people pleasing. That could look real big. That could look like making yourself small. And then the other category is the numbing. I'm going to shut down the pain. That's, we call it the firefighters because it puts out the flame of that injury, of that wound. And so a lot of this develops as children, but although a lot of it can happen as adults too, um, where we're, we're not even aware of this dynamic going on inside of us, where we've got these, we, in, in IFS, they call them these exiled parts of us that we've, we've, we've sidelined. Just the way that we sideline things that are hard in, our, in the world around us. And then these other parts of us develop to protect, to protect, to push people away um, or to keep people happy or to just shut myself down through an addiction, through whatever I need to do because I haven't really gotten. And, and so my theology in the middle of that is, if you look at how Jesus interacted with people on the earth, who did he move toward? He moved toward the ones hurting the most. Those parts of us that are hurting the most are actually, that's where God wants to go in at the deepest of levels to bring healing and it takes kind of tinkering with the whole system because slowly we have to learn not not how to not be angry anymore but how to harness that anger in healthy ways or not not learn how to never comfort ourselves but learn how to comfort ourselves in healthy ways and so the process of healing as i look at bringing god into it is all of those parts are valuable every single one, but we want to bring them into alignment with the wholeness, with the goodness of that, that I sometimes call it the God DNA or the Imago Dei, that self, that God-given self deep inside. 
um, to, to bring all of this into alignment with a healthier way of being in the world. And it may look, mm-hmm. it, it may look still like somebody who's really forceful, but it's in alignment now with, I know what I'm about. I know who I'm protecting. I know the part, the part of me has been healed. And now I'm fighting for something in alignment with the whole self and with the whole God. So rather than being driven by the unseen things, the things that we don't understand, there's an intentional partnering for our betterment, for the betterment of others and so on. That's right. That's right. So it becomes conscious. There's a consciousness. So when the wound, when the exile, when the vulnerable parts of us isn't getting the care it needs, it's sort of driving us subconsciously. And we're not actually, and again, this is the psychology take. Again, I'll let the other, the other experts bring in the culture piece to this, but the psychological take is when that wound is buried, it is driving, it is impacting us. And the way in which we're managing that isn't isn't necessarily as healthy or as whole as it could be. Um, so we want to go in and get that at, get the healing at the deepest of levels so that the what we bring, the power we bring into the world is out of our whole self, our deepest self, our truest self. That's excellent. Panel, uh, anybody want to add to that? Okay, I have a question for you, and it's a it's a real question. So much of our theology of God is mind-centered. It's rationalistically based. It's at the surface and all of that. Why do you think we are so afraid of encounter? You know, um, and and how do we avoid going from a rationalistically based psychological frame of reference or from a theological rationalistically based to a rational psychological basis and and you know where does encounter because obviously on this panel and you heard it i'm not the academic i'm i'm kind of a street theologian and uh and a street psychologist that's just you know that's just been my history but what I have found is that encounter, actual moving it out of the rational frame of reference and into the personal interactive, uh, which includes community, right? Which include, but it definitely includes encounter with the persons of Trinity or the being of love, um, the personal being of love. So why do you think we just don't want to go there? We would rather keep it in the mind where we can have a sense of control. Maybe that's part of the answer. I, it's funny. I just wrote about literally using that word this morning, Paul, where I traded in my own life, head knowledge of God, which wasn't getting me anywhere. Then I went into study psychology and I just got a whole lot more head, head knowledge. Didn't Perfect. know myself. Didn't know God. Didn't know myself. Had a lot of knowledge and actually kind of had a breakdown. And this is where the acting came in. So at that time, therapy was more cognitive. Let's go change our thinking. It's all rationalistic. I didn't need that. (laughs) So I started acting. And acting is where I learned. I remember my wise acting teacher. This was so far out of the church model, so far out of any psychological model. This guy was my healer. Was like, you know so much about anger and you don't. You've never encountered the parts of you that are angry. And so I had to go on this intentional journey of finding those places inside my own self. And so to your point, absolutely, you can have all this head knowledge of yourself and of God, but to really deeply um, move into 
a lived experience um, requires attention, paying attention on the ground in the moment. There's there's so many different ways everybody else could speak to. Now with these trauma-informed therapies, IFS, EMDR, all this work that Bessel van der Kolk is doing, we're realizing ways of doing exactly what you're saying, which is getting people into their lived experience. It's painful. It's not pleasant. It's easier to know about anger than I remember the first time I was like, oh my gosh, that is terrifying. That is a terrifying power inside of me. I don't know if I want to open that lid. <laughs> but and, and and I encourage people not to do that by themselves. Do that in a safe place. Or that pain, that bucket of pain is, but oh my goodness, if you don't go through it and experience it, you miss out on coming into the fullness of being a whole you know, a whole person who lives on all the different levels. Um, Thank you. So good. I remember when I discovered I was angry was when I uh, tried to punch a hole in a wall. I was brushing my children's teeth and one of them spat toothpaste in my face. And for some reason that triggered me very deeply and I was not about to physically hurt my children. So I physically hurt myself, right? Brilliant trade-off. And almost broke my knuckles, still still don't have hands the same size. And I said, I think I've got some anger. And I spoke to my mother and she said, oh, I'm so sorry about that. I, I grew up thinking anger was a sin. Me too. And so you, so you never got to witness any healthy displays of anger. Like lots of people have had unhealthy, chronically unhealthy displays of anger. I just had nothing. Me too. I, I, I was 38 years old before I was angry before I consciously, and I remember it so clearly uh, because Kim was there and uh, Kim is my wife. And, and I'm, I'm literally in the middle of this raging. And at the same time going like, look at this, like I'm angry. Like how cool is this? You know, it was unbelievable. And, uh, but a lot of that came from the same kind of stifling um, performance-based theology that said that, you know, to be, I didn't understand how to be angry and not sin. You know, that just, that wasn't, that wasn't a scripture that made any sense to me. It was either you're angry or you're not. So all of my anger just came out in much more damaging ways, like, uh, um, uh, a sense of humor that was just vitriolic um, empowered by my rationalism. And, um, and I could, you know, I'm not a big guy. I'm, I'm five foot six and, and lost every fist fight I've ever been in, but I could take a 300 pound man to his knees by the right, the, the not right, but the placement of words. And I, and that was partly because I, I grew up in a different culture. And so a lot of the anomalies of this culture were very obvious to me, although they were just like breathing water to everybody else and, and they became weaponized. And so the whole movement, but my theology was a huge impediment to my own wholeness. Thanks for taking us there, Paul. That's my next question. And it's for you. In, incidentally, when I met Paul face to face, he said, oh, you're short like me. And we had a special short man's hug, which is great bond. Yes. because most of us are used to having to hug tall men like Jerome. And it's yeah. always awkward and your back hurts and you're up here. But oh, no, no. He just picks me up. So <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, for us, it was face to face. For me, it's right. often face to navel or 
something so else. Paul, when I reached out to my followers and I said, I'm doing a panel on Jesus and trauma, what do you want us to discuss? What, what questions do you want answered? I received a lot of questions back surrounding bad theology. Uh, especially, you know, in our case, evangelical theology that's left, in many cases, really lasting scars. Mm-hmm. And I think the most, the largest category, which you don't have to speak to, but the largest category that came in was eschatology. It was <laughs> uh, your entire family got raptured and just you got left behind. Uh, all this kind of stuff surrounding Jesus as a figure of fear of judgment and of wrath. Uh, and I, I know, you know, some of those fears and traumas have shaped our imagination, have shaped oh, no doubt. us. So I wonder if you can speak to ways in which bad theology shapes sure. us. And, and then maybe how we can re-envision the divine in maybe a non-traumatic way. Wow. That's a huge conversation, isn't in it? In 10 minutes, please. <laughs> please, yeah. So my favorite aunt on my mom's side, passed away about a week ago and uh, very elderly. It wasn't COVID related, but she just uh, in her sleep had a horribly traumatic life herself. But she she's the one that snuck me to my first movie. And uh, and when she and I remember. Absolutely. It was the king and I with Yul Brenner. I mean, you could see his whole bald head and everything, you know, and so so but but um I remember even inside that theater thinking like, I know if Jesus comes back right now, I'm going to walk out and everybody's going to be gone. You know, so I I know that eschatology, like I was, you know, we were very dispensational in our evangelical holiness movement. And, um, and so it, the thing that I find with a lot of theology is that it's, it's promoted by two things, shame and fear. And anybody I think that knows trauma knows that those are two of the greatest motivators of false identity and everything else. You know, right now we're in a culture of of everybody who doesn't know who they are trying to self-promote and self-protect because that's what the false self does. And and a lot of our theology um, is embedded in that kind of history. You know, just take for example, uh, Baxter Kruger said this offhand one time. He's a theologian. He said this offhand one time, and I've kind of camped there for the last 10 years. I'm actually working on a book about it. And it's wholeness, wholeness, which is a derivative of holiness. Yeah. Uh, wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. Wholeness is when the way of your being, how you live your life, is an expression of the truth of your being. Right. And this is flat out where theology plays is such an essential role because it tries to tell you what the truth of your being is. And it can, if it's accurate. Um, been in a conversation with a panelist group. Uh, it's a, over the gospel of John. And, and uh, one of the gentlemen that's on the panel is Eastern Orthodox. And he's just befuddled by Western evangelicalism because we make an assumption that they are actually, it's pretty much day one, you're commanded not to believe. And I call it post, you know, piece of shit theology. And and this goes back to people like Martin Luther, who said, you know, that the truth of a human being is that they are snow covered dung. 
uh, piece of shit theology. And, um, and so that if you believe that the deepest essential nature of who you are is that you are worthless, the Greek word that Paul uses is skubala, when, when he says, all of these great accomplishments I consider to be absolute loss, it's actually worse than shit. At least you can grow something in shit. But scubala is like nothing. Like it's, uh, it, it, is, it is not my identity whatsoever, right? But so many of us, we don't know the truth of who we are. And so we, we, we persuade ourselves and the world around us that the truth of who we are is the way of our being. But the problem is the way of our being is loaded with loss and pain and poisons that come from what we've been told about us our whole life. So for me personally, my dad was, a, he was a rager. He did not know how to be a dad. His dad had absolutely busted that capacity in him before I ever showed up. And I'm the firstborn of four. And, um, and so he was a terror to me growing up. There was, I, you know, and I was a year old when we moved into the highlands of what was then Netherlands, New Guinea. And, um, and that's where I grew up. I grew, I didn't even know I was white till I got, I was six years old and they sent me to boarding school. It's a huge disappointment. And, um, and I just, it was such a, so I'm in this world where supposedly the person who is telling me the truth of who I am, you know, when he would come at me, and a lot of times I didn't even know why, um, I had two defenses. One was to lie. And let me just say this as an aside for a lot of folks out there. I think that lying almost always is a survival skill. It is not an attempt to dis to the the surface level may look like a an attempt to deceive someone, but it's actually to find a space to say stay safe. And I still I'm 65 years old, and uh, I, I don't I don't struggle with it near as much. But there is there are parts of me that want to shape the truth so that there is some place to be safe. Yeah. It's been a long part of my healing journey. I got to tell you one other thing too, is that um, um, I've gone through, a, um, oh, I don't, Kim and I don't know how to talk about them except they're called episodes. And, and uh, I think they're neurological. I need to probably talk to Jerome about this um, uh, or any of you actually, but um, uh, we've gone through all the blood work and everything else. It's not COVID and it's happened to me now twice and I'm in the middle of it right now. But, but it's there's no fear associated, but I'll go through like 45 to a minute um, episodes where my whole body flushes out and I'm incredibly nauseous. And I think that I'm going to just throw up on the world and um, and then it just passes through. And there's no fear. And one of the one of the most beautiful side effects of these episodes is that it has broken down my ability to compartmentalize my emotions. And, uh, and I absolutely love that, by the way, especially for someone who was, quote, never emotional. I only lived from my head. So what you're seeing is, you know, I'm, I didn't know if I was going to be able to actually be with you today, but um, I'm so grateful. So my point 
If you don't know the truth of who you are, and my dad told me the truth of who I was, so my defense mechanism was to either lie and try to get him to 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 not be as brutal, right? Or I would yell at him three words: "I'll be good. I'll be good. I'll be good. I'll be good." I just would yell it over and over and over. And and as a child, when you're four and five and six and seven and eight. Every time you yell that, you are reinforcing an underlying belief in the truth of your being. So my dad communicates that sexual abuse started for me at about five, and I was sent to boarding school in the, the night, the first nights the big boys came and molested the littlest boys. And so, again, you're, you're a piece of shit, right? And then my theology camped on top of that, right? So not only did my dad think that, and my experience told me that, and then we moved to Canada when I'm 10, back to Canada, I was born in Canada, and we moved back to Canada when I'm 10 years old. And I'm trying to figure out, what the hell? How do you, how do you fit into a world like this? You know, I, I'm the right color, but I don't know how to function. And uh, all my addictions and hiding everything and all my secrets and all that, everything re- reinforced now my theology. And so, you know, and then we sing these horrible songs like, you are good, you are good, there is nothing good in me. Piece of shit theology songs, yeah? And it's just like reinforcing. And so I love theology, don't get me wrong. I I, I was laughing with somebody, I, for the first time in decades, the Holy Spirit gave me a verse for the year. I just, I, I think I overhear Trinity have a conversation. Should we get Paul a verse for this year? No, he gets too triggered, you know. And, uh, and, and my education is in theology. And uh, um, so, but I got one for this year and it's, it's great. It's, it's this, Hebrews 3.13, it goes like this. Encourage, add courage, enlarge the heart of, kura, huh? enlarge the heart of one another as long as it is about today so that you are not swept away by the deceitfulness of brokenness. Is that not stunning? And what it's saying is it it attacks two things, shame and fear. And I think even shame is under the auspices of fear. In, In agape, in love, there is no fear at all. You know, the one who fears is not perfected in love. That is, you don't know yet how much you're loved or what, what that love is truly like. And, um, and we're all future trippers. If, you know, we're, we create imaginations that don't exist. We don't live in the present. Joy has always been present to us. We've just not been present to joy because we don't stay present. And, and we don't know how to live inside today because we actually don't know we're loved enough that somebody's got tomorrow in the grasp of that affection, right? And so, so we've got to figure out how, how to make this work. And so we're always future tripping. We're not present. We're off into some imagination that doesn't exist. And there's nothing like a pandemic to immediately invite you into all kinds of imaginations, right? And um, we've had nine members of our extended family with COVID and, and almost lost three of them, had friends that have been killed by COVID. And, um, and so, you know, when you hear it, you're immediately invited into leaving the present. 
And it's in the present where all the activity happens, but a lot of theology, and this, this now speaks to your issue of eschatology. Eschatology was all future tripping science, worse than science fiction, you know? And, uh, but it traumatized an entire generation of us in, in unbelievable ways and, uh, and closed the book of Revelation for one. Since, since then, that book has taught me almost more about my identity in Jesus than any other section of scripture. And it's just absolutely opened up even my inner world to me. But people are like, how can that be possible? Everybody's raptured by chapter four. And uh, so who cares, you know? And it's, it's, again, we want the fortune tellers because then we can have a sense of control because when you deal with fear, which supposedly good theology addresses, and bad theology exacerbates, when you deal with fear, you're either gonna go in one of two directions, trust or control. And a lot of our theology is control of fear. That's what, that's what it's presented as, that's what we're taught. And, and then we assume the mask, we don't do good acting like, Al, uh, like Allison was talking about. We, we hide under our performance orientation because we don't have a clue who the truth of who we are is. And if you don't know the truth of who you are, and if you think the truth of who you are is that you're a piece of shit, you will not only act like one, you'll let people treat you like one. And so this becomes critical. Is our theology actually an expression of the truth? And this is why encounter for me just goes right to the heart of it, because I need God to tell me the truth of who I am. Mm. And then I can see where the writers of scripture were saying the same thing. But in, when, I, when I was fear driven and shame driven, all I could see in scripture was fear and shame. I mean, they just reinforced it. So, yeah, this is a critical conversation for a lot of us. Thank you, Paul. I'm so, so glad that you're with us today. Mm, honored to be here. we got a room full of theologians and thinkers and feelers. Anyone else want to add to that? Um, uh, yeah, I'm going to say a, a few things. Um, first of all, I was incredibly moved by um, what you shared, Paul. Um, so pardon me if my voice shakes a little bit. Uh, and the second part is um, when I hear words and phrases like mask and wholeness and um, even, even the experience of God or the encounter with, with divinity um, and anger, uh, I immediately think to what that experience is like not just for me, Amita, as a woman of of African descent and African rearing, but um, to my community at large. It is not safe for us <laughs> to to show anger. <laughs> it is not safe. Oh, we are angry, but it is not safe. And and you see that. Like I laugh to mask my anger because I need to temper my wholeness. I need to temper my wholeness and, and fit it into the, the colonized box so that I can move through the world safely. 
and and even in moving through the world world safely i am still by and large at risk just for simply you know showing up and what further compounds that as if anything can compound a piece of shit theology right <laughs> but what what further compounds that is that my encounter with divinity cannot even be authentic to who I am intrinsically because my encounter has been, I, I would say massaged if I, if I wanted to be nice, but it has been forcefully restricted and defined. And if I'm not singing songs by Hillsong, if I am not tithing 10%, if I'm not volunteering a bajillion hours from my pastor and, you know, wiping the tea that his wife spills <laughs> because I worship who she is in the name of white Jesus, um, then I'm not even allowed to encounter or experience colonized God. Um, so the journey is, it's a farce. It's worse than a farce, Amita. It's the institutional religious system is a human trafficking structure. That's what it is, right? It will suck the life, the blood, the sweat, and the tears out of you. And, and as soon as they, you think that they used it all up, they'll come up with a new word, missional, destiny, something, in order to suck even more out of you. And the drivers behind it are performance orientation, and guilt and and it's coercive to everybody in the system you know i i don't know any more coerced people than the leaders of institutional structures you know but they bought into it too and now they can't leave it because they don't know who they are apart from it and so it, it is and i i got that out of the book of revelation by the way that this <laughs> that it is a human trafficking system Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I actually try to get a lawyer here in Toronto to press human trafficking charges against the church because that was where my research led to, that this is actually human trafficking. So just in that, you have, um, <laughs> you have affirmed over five years of my fight against institutionalized uh, religion, um, cool, hip religion here, here in Toronto. Uh, so, hallelujah, amen. Amen. Third culture kid, you know. Yeah. When you guys are, when I'm listening to both of you again, just feeling the, you know, just with so much emotion inside of me as well, I f touches on, you know, just barely, but, you know, the, thinking about the way Jesus got co-opted into white cocker spaniel Jesus who's nice and kind and sweet. And that's, the, and then actually thinking about the Jesus who was so angry at the systems you guys are describing. And I don't know that, that, that Jesus gets a lot of airtime. I don't, I don't know. I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on that. But, you know, I remember one time rereading the book of, it's kind of like when you reread, kind of like how you're rereading Revelation. I reread the gospels and I was like, oh my gosh, this isn't what I was taught. There, there's a lot of harshness. There's a lot of um, calling out in very harsh words, not nice words. Um, 
the some of these systems you guys are describing? If if we can remember that compassion is the combination of fury and sorrow, it helps because we all know Jesus to be compassionate, but we need to understand that it's the integration of fury and sorrow. This is a man of grief, yeah? yeah. And so um, otherwise, if you just have fury, it, you know, the sword creates the sword. And, um, but when you, when you mix that fury with the sorrow for, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, right? Or the weeping over Jerusalem or, you know, but it's, it's that the fury of Jesus is always an expression of love. And therefore it's compassionate. He's like, stop. Woe doesn't mean you're bad. It means stop. I mean, in, in the culture, it meant stop. You know, don't you know, and the confrontation is an exposing one to those who are so deeply hidden inside their religious constructs. Fundamentally, you know, and it's true that for those who are hurt, he didn't have to travel as far. For those who were hidden inside their religious systems, he had to go a long ways to try to get to them. But they were the, they were the lost sheep that he'd leave the 99 to go find. And, um, and so, you know, again, it's like, how do we be in this world, but not of it? And, and that is uh, the only place I know is inside my union with, with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on a day-by-day basis, responding to what's actually in front of me, not in imagination. Yeah. Allison, what comes to mind when you phrase that that way? In, in my own journey with understanding my anger, coming to see that anger, you know, reveals our expectations, what, what we thought was going to happen or, or what we hoped would never happen, that, that in an emotional sense, anger is an advocate. Anger helps us see what our values were. And I think in some ways, if we allow ourselves to see the anger of Jesus, we might accidentally see the advocacy of Jesus. And that would be bad for these systems. We can tolerate an angry father. So we can we can push the anger onto God because we don't see advocacy in it. We just see rage. But if we see what Paul's describing, that the, the blending of the sorrow and the anger, that it moves Christ to advocacy, to action, to rescue and redemption, well, that is going to call out and critique these very systems that we're that we're in slavery to. Ooh, Amita, are you being called out a bit here? <laughs> well, my next question is for Amita. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's like, girl, we need you to be pissed off. Come on. You know, and I know it'll cost you. But but you know what? We're in an environment right now where pissed off black women are really an advantage. And um in in some ways very powerfully um there's a space that's been crafted for you. Amita, I would like to put a question to you and you can go where you like with it. As, as I've listened to, to these stories, to your story, to countless other people's story, and you, and you summed it up yourself, 
not being able to image God in a way that is integrous to who you are, uh, not being given permission to do that, not being even granted the imagination to do that. Um, there's all these systems, all this, the way this whole thing works. And I think like Paul said, it's dehumanized all of us, but I want, I want to make sure that, that first and foremost, we, we paid you. Well, one of the things that I guess it seems to me is that there's this individuality, there's this breakdown of community. We've heard that word. There's all these different outputs of this system that, that I, 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 I learned from many voices of color that it wasn't just deconstructing my faith. It was really decolonizing my faith. And that's a word I've switched to using as I realized what it was. But I wonder if you can speak to some of these ways that Western thought, uh, whether it's theology or philosophy, the wider categories of colonialism, however, however that's burning in you right now, how that's contributed to this kind of erasure of communal identity, of intersectionality, of creating systems that so perfectly prohibit your and others' wholeness. Now, if I had put that in my statement of intent application to my PhD program, I doubt they would have let me in. <laughs> Because that was a couple of years ago when um, Black Lives Matter was still uh, characterized as the, why won't those angry Black women shut up? Uh, they still say that, but now they can't ignore the chorus. And they, um, whenever I say they, my mom's like, who's they? Uh, the they is the... Um, those who know not what they do, to borrow from what uh, Paul says. Uh, I'm West African, uh, I'm a storyteller, so I will probably do that because um, that's how we hold truth. And I, I point that out because I've had to unlearn that which I was taught. The truth has to be either, oh, check this out, black or white. You like the way I did that? <laughs> uh, and, and there was no storytelling in truth. And uh, I, speaking again uh, to what Paul said um, about lying, I came to fully understand um, the power in storytelling with my teenage son. And he would always tell these stories um, that I considered an affront to my moral ethical compass. You know, like, why won't you just tell the truth? This could be over in two minutes. But he always had to tell the story. Now, this is my son. I've loved him since I met him at four. He's not biological. He's from my family, my extended family. And uh, my husband and I adopted him formally into um, into our family unit, even though we'd loved him forever. And uh, he comes from a place of trauma. And what he learned from his trauma experience was that you needed to tell stories um, to temper people's re anger. And so he just tells stories. 
And uh, I had to recognize, and I'm tempted to say that that recognition came through uh, uh, a divinely inspired moment. But then I'm also reluctant to use language I picked up in evangelism, <laughs> evangelicalism, because, because I'm rejecting that right now. But I felt inspired to stop and see the value of his stories. And our relationship transformed. Because instead of accusing him when he was filled with fear and shame, I created space to actually listen to his reality. Now, I tell that story because the storytelling of who we are as people of color, as Africans, I like to say my dust is drawn from the continent metaphorically, not that I ascribe to the seven-day, you know, box, but as a reminder that there is a specific reason why this personhood showed up in the time and the space and the packaging that it showed up in. And if I minimize that, I erase the story that was meant to be told through my personhood. And I don't know much about God, but one thing I know I'm sitting right now in, in the park, uh, in my car, but in the park, uh, one thing, I because I've got five children, okay, I got to hide. <laughs> but one thing I do know ab about God through my experience is that there is a cacophony of diversity that is alluring and beguiling and transformational and confusing. <laughs> but there is there is something in the driving force that animates each and every one of us that insists on diversity. Like, what is up with divinity? Why can't there just be one tree? Why can't there just be one cat? You know, one ant, for heaven's sake. Why do I have to be so many of them? And if I, if I leaned into that a little bit, um, what I get from it is that there there is inherent power in this diversity to mirror for us. I don't want to use the word image, but to mirror for, for us that which God is. And if we're going to actually take our time and sit with that, then for me personally, when I do that, I am compelled um, to look around me past the plants and the animals and the fungi, which we're crazy about right now in my household, how many mushrooms show up in our land and the power of the mycelium um, to the humans, to the humans. And looking to the humans and naturally looking to myself and looking to my kids and looking to the culture that, that raised my mother's mother's mother. Because beyond that, it starts to get really tricky uh, what was raising us. I call myself the bastard child of colonization, um, but I'm not really a bastard because my mom was colonization and my dad was Jesus, at least the white Jesus um, that come together in this 
devastating marriage to create this ideology and this way of life that says diversity is bad. Everything has to be this way as in, in the box and the box has to be colored a certain way and has to move a certain way and has to say certain things. And, and in their living that out, they created these wonderful boarding schools um, that we all got sent to. I went in when I was nine and I went in a rambunctious, spunky little girl and I came out a well-colonized woman. Like I knew what to do, what to say. I was stripped of a lot of that which made me who I am, but I knew how to function in the white world. And for a long time, I used that as my mask until it, I started to, I, I say leak, I started to leak. Um, and, and the leaking wasn't pretty wasn't pretty at all and it started to really malign my soul you know malign, like to disalign my, my my being and that was when it became clear to me that you know I needed to get my waist beads back on I needed to tie my hair up if I felt the need to I needed to not spend all this time trying to lay down my edges because I was told that that's the way you're supposed to do it because it makes you look more white. Uh, I needed to be okay if I was in the sun for too long <laughs> um, because it darkened my skin. I needed to stop trying so hard to sound like them and be okay if Ghanaian languages came out as I tried to express myself and I couldn't find my English word. I needed to do all these things as tiny little acts of reclaiming myself. And I needed to be okay that that would be construed as being rebellious because as much as my soul, I think, I think, I shouldn't even question that, as much as I believe I was... I was just this little rebellious spirit that just got stuffed into this little body. I'm like five foot three, just because I'm sitting. So it makes me look tall, but I'm small. <laughs> uh, I was told that to be rebellious was to be a bad thing. And it took me a while to understand that there was intentionality to the nature that I came, I came for this earth experiment with. And I needed to pull all these little strings and out of the, the picture or the tapestry, since we, I'm using strings, um, and allow, give myself permission to weave a tapestry that is instinct, instinctively me. And that is a huge thing. Because when you're told that your instinct is piece of shit theology, reclaiming that and saying it's okay it's okay I i'm cool if i am evil that's fine i'll be okay i'll be okay if the things that i reclaim have me be painted as a evil person as dabbling in witchcraft or dabbling in this or dabbling in that because until I allow myself to fully experience it I will not be able to in the fullness of my own integrity allow for the power of that which created me to point out 
oh, but they think this is evil, but do you see a little hint of me over there? And aren't you surprised by how beautiful I show up over there? And isn't it incredible how I just keep on showing up everywhere? So my husband says, I tell too many stories. I tell him he's colonized, he shut up. <laughs> but <laughs> I say all those things to say, I am very much aware of my colonized reality, of my colonized way of being. And every single thing that I do from the point of my waking, my awakening is to reclaim. And I, that seeps into my work in all places. I work with little humans and I, I try not to spend too much time with adults because they lack imagination for the most part. <laughs> Um, and, and it's in that space of, of prophetic imagination to borrow for one of my favorite theologians, uh, that the undoing happens. And it is my fervent hope and prayer that, you know, we will catch that like a virus as people of color and allow ourselves to prophetically imagine who we are in this moment as full people of color created with intentionality. Um, and then leave the future tripping to that which holds us in the grip of the emotion of love. Come on. <laughs> Allison, do you want to say something? I think we could just mic drop right there. But I, I that's just beautiful. I um, am learning so much listening. I am curious. I, he I heard you say, Paul as much as you're sort of critiquing the church or critiquing bad theology, there's a part of you that loves theology. And I want to speak on a similar way about psychology. And I'm curious about the group's experience. I think some of these same critiques are true of psychology, the colonization, the boxes, the look this way, what is wholeness? What is true self, self-actualize, right? All of that, I think all of the same critiques. And, and, and even as a white woman, that was some of my experience within the narrow confines of psychology. And so I just kind of wanted to put that out there. There are things I love about the field that has brought a lot to folks. And also there are some of the similar um, issues within that field. Um, very westernized, all these ideas of um, what it looks like to be healthy, you know, <laughs> Or so I, I just kind of want to put that on the table as we're talking about Jesus and trauma. Um, there are lots of ways in which these systems have let us down. I know that some of my best work or, or most meaningful work has been the work I've done um, outside of the mainstream in, um, you know, lots of lots of my friends, lots of the people where my husband and I work and minister or not ministry, um, receive ministry, frankly, is among um, folks who are um, who don't have homes. Um, we go, you know, we do a lot of the and I learn, I listen, I am the one going in going, oh, I'm going to come in here and say, this is how you have a true self. It, 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 uh -uh. <laughs> you know, that, that those those paradigms shift and don't, don't apply. Um, and so, so much of what, and that's been a blessing to me. I don't do that for, I do that to go, Oh, and I, and I, I'm still formulating. What does it mean that Jesus says, you, you gotta, you gotta get outside of the boxes. You gotta get, it's not to save. It's not, it's to, Oh, I've got something here to learn. And um, that reflects on these 
these things where I, you know, and I'm still kind of formulating some of that, but just wanted to put that out there that I think this whole system, this academic system of psychology and the way it's developed has some of that same um, limitations and breeds some of the same othering um, to certain populations. And I, like I said, I've, I've experienced that, but I also see it in some of the places where I've gone to work, where so much of the work is just like, oh, let's just set it all aside and be present, encounter um, someone who's, who's just beautiful, how they are. <laughs> I don't, you know what I mean? I, and that's been um, so deeply, um, it doesn't mean I want to leave psychology. Right. doesn't mean I want to leave. I, there's so many things I've learned that have helped me, but, but it does mean I always want to be trying to get outside of it to see it through a different lens, through the lens of someone else. And I, I just kind of wanted to add that in. That's really helpful, Allison. And, uh, you know, it's just like nobody can deny that the 12-step program has saved millions of people's lives, right? And, and there, is, there is wonder and beauty. The fact that we create these systems, they don't, it doesn't keep divine love out, you know? And it's, it's like, ah, well, I said this to someone one time. I said, uh, the only reason you'll find God in a box is because he loves to be where we are, right? And, and that's part of what you're saying. And, and, and so it's, it's tempting to then throw everything out, which some of us have to do, frankly. You know, I had to throw out the Bible for like 15 years. It was so toxic to me. And, um, and then slowly allow like, the Holy Spirit to reintroduce it back into my world. But it was a necessary part of the dismantling of all the damage. And um, so uh, we're all, I, I find lots of beautiful things inside psychology and what it has done. And, and the fact that there is such a massive range and spectrum with regard to the modalities for the healing of human beings just tells me over and over how unique the human being is. And, if you wrote a good marriage, a book on marriage, you'd need one per marriage because- And because, a few for mine, like five or six for mine. <laughs> because marriage, you know, human beings weren't made for marriage. Marriage was made for human beings, you know? Um, human beings weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for human beings. And so it's, it, it's just like, no. Yes, we see the value in those things, but human beings are way bigger than the structures and the systems that we try to place them inside of. So I so appreciate, I appreciate what everybody is saying here. Jerome. Yeah, before you ask my question, I just wanted to say thank you to Amita for everything that you shared. Thank you for the grace to be willing to take the effort that it takes to share that again. I know it's not the first time but to do the heavy lifting. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be in the vicinity of that conversation. You know, one of my favorite things that I was told when I was growing up, I, I grew up around storytellers too. Um, the, uh, the joys of, of a dad who spoke 13 languages, nine of them were tribal. Um, but I was always told you don't really know the story unless you can recite it, right? 
I don't know your story well enough to tell it to somebody else, but I do appreciate the fact that I now have it recorded, that I can go back and listen to it a couple more times. Um, because I would love to know that even more. So I just want to say thank you for sharing what you did and the grace to be in the space of it. It was really good. It was life-giving. Thank you. I second that. Jerome, uh, the reason I kept you to the end is because I love the way your brain works, <laughs> uh, which is not to make any statements about the brains of anyone else on this panel, but it, it is specifically to make a statement about yours. Look uh, at that big brain on Jerome. <laughs> It's a physically man. big head. Let's be honest. Uh, it, let's be honest. I have a part of my brain that physically herniated out of my skull. It ran out of real estate. So that's uh, that's actually my clinical diagnosis. So I'm I'm familiar with big big brain issues. <laughs> it's totally okay. We can talk <laughs> about that. And it's not because it's any more intelligent. It's just because it's it's. I think my skull is too small. I got a giant body, and and, and there's just problems. But please keep going. We'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll see where this lands. It's going to be great. <laughs> What I, what I hoped you might be able to offer us and, and our listeners today yeah. is some, some ways, some tools, and some, maybe some framework for how we can apply some of these things to ourselves in therapeutic ways, how we can uh, move in each of these areas that we've been discussing yeah. Uh, and and why it is that the human is so healable, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity to boil the ocean in less than eleven minutes. But we'll see how we can do it. Okay. Well, you, you're, you're you're the end now, so you can just use all the rest of the time. Well, there you go. So I'm having adding levity to give myself a chance to get, to catch up with you guys. It's been such an incredible conversation. Um. But, you know, in all honesty, to answer your question, Jonathan, as my five-year-old sweetly comes up to, to step in with me, are you going to sit low? Okay. Um, you know, I think the, the, there's a couple of words that were coming up for me as, uh, you know, as Allison's talking about IFS systems or Paul is talking about the idea of what we believe our theology to be good, bad, or indifferent. What Jonathan is talking about when he's like, okay, how do I approach a God who feels unapproachable? And even Amita talking about how do I fit my narrative into this? when my narrative and my lived experience isn't welcome as a part of the dynamic or the dialect, it's really just hard to figure out how to do that. And the word that kept coming up for me is I think in, in whether you talk about neurological conversations, you talk about colonization, theological, psychological, neurological, any of the big words, what you're really talking about from a brain perspective and an experience as a human being, the way of our being is the idea of fluency and language. It's how the brain learns. It's, is it teachable? You know, it's, it's the idea of what is the nature of what the brain and what our human experience can actually learn. Yeah. One of the things that I often tell people when I'm talking about like practical understanding of neuroscience, Paul and I have had some great conversations about this, is your brain does not know the difference between perception and reality. They are the same thing until there's context. What does that mean? It means that if I have a deadline, an email due, a project, my five-year-old asking if I can play with him while I'm in the middle of a podcast. Do I initially anticipate that's a threat or do I have the opportunity to realize in context that it's not life-threatening? My brain doesn't know the difference between a bear and a deadline. What I mean by that is if I am actively in a life-threatening situation, my brain is going to respond the same way as if I'm running late for a flight at the airport. It's going to react the same way if one of my kids spits 
toothpaste on me. And I feel like that is a threat that needs to be immediately eradicated. And then just quickly, thankfully, your brain goes, not the child, go for the wall, because there's still a process of anger, right? All of the things, and I'm a huge fan of internal family systems. A lot of the context of the book that I wrote was, was using some of the language from internal family systems, is the idea of going, here's a couple of things to think through, okay? Questions to ask after this podcast is finished. Um, is not what is my narrative alone, but what is the narrative? What is the story that I've been told? What's the language that is used in that story? You know, one of my favorite quotes from my older brother is language drives culture. And depending on the language that you've been raised around, your cultural experience is going to be vastly different. Like I said, I grew up with a dad who spoke 13 languages. He could switch in and out of Kosa and Debele, Swahili, Afrikaans, French, English, and all of these other languages. And he was fluent in that. So his cultural experience was different. My cultural experience as a white kid named Jerome moving to Atlanta <laughs> from Congo was a little different than my peers when we first landed in Knoxville, Tennessee. Those things are different. But if we understand our cultural fluency, like what's the language that we speak? What's the stories that we're being told? We understand that cultural fluency then all of a sudden starts to build in confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is subconscious. It's instinctive. It's reactive. It's it's something that we don't have control over. We can change, but it's a, it's a hard line protocol in our system. And the reason I say that that's super important is when you take in all these really big conversations and you're going, what do I do with that? I think it's important to understand from a brain-based perspective, if your brain doesn't know the difference between perception and reality and you don't know that, you're not going to understand the fear of what it's like for a black person to be pulled over by the police compared to you not being able to check out at Kroger fast enough or your grocery store because the person in front of you won't wear a mask and they're upset about their rights being violated because everybody's dealing with what they consider a life-threatening situation. But I think part of it is to understand it's helpful for us in context to say, is this way of life being threatened or is my actual life being threatened? Because those are two very, very different questions because as a white affluent, three-degree male who had a lot of opportunities, even as an immigrant kid who came over to the States on asylum status. I know what it's like to grow up poor. I know what it's like to be a refugee kid. I know what it's like to be disenfranchised. I know what it's like to be aggressively and heavily bullied growing up in high school in the States as an immigrant kid. I do not know what it's like to be a BIPOC person. I do not know what it's like to be LGBTQ. I do not know what those lived experiences are like. So it's helpful when we're talking about these stories to know that your brain, to distill this, is 100% of the time going to assume that you are in a life-threatening situation until you aren't. So the faster we can get to the point of saying, is my way of life being threatened and can I survive that? Or is my actual life being threatened? Because then that changes the way that we respond very, very quickly. Because if my way of life is being threatened and I don't want somebody on my lawn, so I step out front with an armed weapon, am I doing things that are because my life is being threatened or my way of life is being threatened? And I reiterate that because one of the things that's amazing in the world that I work in, I work in functional neurology, so I'm kind of like a personal trainer for the brain and I, I joke around, I'm, I'm an identity rehab specialist. So I help people with figuring out how they're, how they're connected to Imago Day, but practically is that 95 to 97% of what happens in our brain on a daily basis is subconscious. Our hard work, our inner work is in trying to be conscious of at least one iota more than the three to 5% we normally connect with. Can I ask inquisitive questions? Can I connect with that? So if we know that 95 to 97% is subconscious, 
and we want to be more aware of these things. I think this is where you can connect things. Can I hit a couple of bullet points quick, Jonathan, just to be conscientious of this? Okay. I got a couple of notes so I can remember. Okay. If we're talking about fluency, we're talking about language and we're talking about understanding. I just want to point out something quickly here. I want to just mention, I looked this up while we were on the call. These are synonyms for fluency. Okay. These are synonyms for if you speak the same language, which oftentimes what we're having a conversation around is we're not speaking the same language. I can't even ask where the restroom is effectively in Spanish. So no wonder I'm not on the same person page with somebody who speaks Spanish. We're trying to speak a language that we think we all connect on. It's completely different. Amita just gave a great example. She said everything that she said in English, I don't have a fluency in her lived experiences. So of course it's going to feel off to me. Right. So here's some synonyms for fluency, literacy, experience, practice, skills, acquaintance, familiarity, and intimacy. Those are all synonyms for fluency. Here's the antonyms for fluency. Ignorance, unfamiliarity, and incompetence. So why I say that is a lot of the times when we're dealing with these conversations and everybody gets triggered, triggers are really, really powerful, hardwired safety mechanisms. They're good things. We just don't want them to happen more often than they need to to keep us alive because then it ends up being traumatizing and secondary re-traumatization and all these other things. But it's helpful to know that if we're trying to learn what other people's lived experiences are, we're trying to learn new narratives, it's going to be uncomfortable until it isn't. We're going to feel ignorant, it's going to be unfamiliar, and we're going to feel incompetent. That's normal and appropriate. <laughs> if I'm learning a new skill like walking, I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a 10-week-old, okay? All of them have different relative lived experiences with walking, which is a basic human function. And when they fall, they get scared. And when they fall, they might or might not get hurt, but it is a learned skill and a learned process. They are ignorant, unfamiliar, and incompetent until they aren't. The reason I say that is if we took the same concept psychologically, theologically, ecumenically, eschatology, in racial reconciliation, in conversations around colonization, and we thought about them the same way that we did when we learned to walk, I think we would realize that walking is nothing more than a controlled series of falls, and so is pretty much everything else in our life. Come on. I'm, I'm watching all my panelists uh, scribble this last note down. <laughs> Thank you, Jerome. Yeah, you're welcome. Once you've all taken notes, uh, who wants to respond and dive in? That was brilliant. Thank you, sir. What a joy to be with you guys today. My gosh. Likewise. I always tell people I like being in a room where I'm not the smartest person in the room or the most well-educated. And I feel like I've accomplished that today. So thank you for helping me check off one of my boxes. <laughs> and you may not believe that to be true, but it's what I believe to be true. And that's my perception. So it's my reality. So congratulations. I still win. <laughs> I'll, I'll help you get back up off the floor here. Yeah. Thank you, sir. I could, I could listen to, to, to you guys talk all day. I, I feel the same. You said that very well, Jerome. Just I thank learned you. so much. So thank you, Jonathan, for, <laughs> for bringing us together. It's my pleasure. We're watching a lot of what you're talking about playing out in the culture. I mean, just, you know, I, I tried to use language like all these false selves are trying to self-promote and self-protect, which is kind yeah. of what you're saying from a neurological point of view. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's one of those things that it's, if we understand every single conversation that we enter into, 
from both an internal and an external experience, my experience with the, the encounter, someone else's experience that I encounter, all of us are starting with a survival strategy that may or may not include someone else or even ourselves, right? We're just trying to survive. But the faster that we can move into a space where we ask ourselves if it is actually life-threatening, the faster that we adjust the way that we are effectively supposed to model these things and to respond in these things. You know, I, I specialize in traumatic brain injury, nonverbal autism, you know, movement disorders, autoimmune disorders, a lot of other things. And what you oftentimes see in this is what's called a sensory mismatch or an excessive response, meaning that it was built in a place that was really reliable at some point, but then somebody lost the narrative of how much do you need to accomplish the goal, like an autoimmune disorder. It's a normal, it's a normal response. It's an appropriate response. But now the body has forgotten that there is such a thing as a brake pedal and it's running roughshod on the rest of the system. You know, it's one of those things to check in with somebody and go, a phrase that I use pretty regularly in, in context of what you just mentioned, Paul, is can I look at this, this present moment right here and ask myself, is it understandable? Is it appropriate? Is it sustainable? You can answer yes to the first two, but if you can't answer yes to the third one, it's probably not going to be healthy long term. You know, you got to be able to go, is it understandable that I'm in a conversation with somebody? Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. You guys can't see what he just did, but let's just say it wasn't holy. Um, but if you can answer, it's understandable that I'm upset that my kid just spit toothpaste on me. I didn't wake up this morning wanting that. It's appropriate that I am angry in Amita's case because I am written out of the narrative of what, what it looks like to be a white evangelical Judeo-Christian model of what God is supposed to look like. That's understandable. The question relative to our own personal lived experience of whether or not we can survive long-term is whether or not it's sustainable. And that's up to that person. Because for instance, with anger, anger isn't sustainable at full throttle, but you sure as hell better have anger as a valuable and reliable resource if you're going to be do doing justice and equity work, because that's not a passive process. I think so some of it is figuring out this language and going, how do I connect with the idea that being assertive is not the same thing as being aggressive? You know, it's, it's very, very different language. So, and the reason I mentioned the sensory mismatch, not to belabor the point here, is clinically as an example, I, I show a lot of, uh, I work with a lot of anxiety post-concussion and post-traumatic brain injury. Um, my degree, to be clear, is not in psychology or psychiatry, but I do brainstem rehab and, and, and brain rehab and, and without drugs or surgery. So how do I rehab anxiety without pharmaceuticals and without surgical interventions and other things? One of the examples that I give people is the system that builds your capacity to be anxious is actually built in your ability to be touched. It's in your sensory system. Mm. The same pathway that deals with light touch also deals with pain. It's the same pathway. And why that's relative, relevant to this conversation to give you the metaphor, kind of the connection of the allegory and the analogy, is if I have a sensory mismatch with what feels safe with regards to touch, it's going to bias everything about what could potentially touch me. So we don't think that ticklishness is a big deal until you realize that almost 100% of anxiety patients are profoundly ticklish. They're sensitive to touch. So when you meet someone who's touchy and they don't understand that they're willing to be in conversation with you, their anxiety is getting spiked because they have a sensory mismatch. They think as soon as somebody's touching them, they're gonna get hurt. 
because someone told them that or they actually had that experience. And the beautiful thing with neuroplasticity and the way that the brain works is all of that can be rewritten. Science is showing that epigenetics means that you have the baseline DNA that's the same, but you can do whatever the hell you want with that if you push the system hard enough. You can get people to learn that there are things like racial inequity that still exist, and that's a language that you can start to speak, and you can actually change the way that you behave in regards to that conversation. You can change the conversation around fear is not an equivalent to sin. Fear is an appropriate process that your body does to keep you alive. So if I can change my belief in what sin and fear are and that they're not mutually inclusive, right, they're not the same thing, then can I learn that my fear is not an indication of my lack of faith? It's actually an indication of the fact that I have a brain that's willing to ask questions about my faith, right? Those are two different things. So yeah, we're changeable, man. It's, it's very, very, it's very, very possible. I think we're just, we gotta, we gotta know that learning those new languages and those new narratives and being willing to change narratives is not only allowed and permissible, but it's also very hard and ain't nobody doing a good workout without getting sore or breaking a sweat. That's kind of part of the process. I like to put in a, a word um, to add to what Amita said too. And this is where the power of storytelling really comes in because it allows for that some of that processing to take place without a fight or flight response, right? It, it allows you to enter the lived experience of another person without a challenge to your own safety. And, um, and I think that is one of the reasons why storytelling is so essential in, um, in the rehabilitation of the ways that we think that ultimately end in changing the ways that we are uh, and changing. Absolutely. Our, yeah. And this is also the beautiful thing. This is actually where you could, you could say that the, the body of Christ as a whole needs its own IFS counselor. <laughs> because really, you're talking about IFS, and, and Allison can speak to this better than anybody, is about telling a new story and updating a narrative. But you have to do that in context of, are you even familiar with the chapters that you ripped out? Are you even familiar with the story that you're not willing to go back and read because it's so traumatizing? You know, because to the, the thing that started the conversation with the first question that Jonathan asked, it was so fascinating for me, uh, is how in the world are you supposed to believe in a God that is for you if you had every example of a relationship growing up in your own household and in your body of Christ or your, your religious building or your, your formative spaces spiritually, none of them felt approachable, right? We've, we've had this idea of what it looks like to see God modeled in, in the nature and the relationship of what our brain actually experienced in real life. And your brain works off of what's called mirror neurons. So if you only have an idea of what your family of origin looks like, and that includes fear, then having to override that belief system is going against the actual truth and the actual data of your lived experience. And that is really weird. Now you're talking about a whole different level of faith. Right. But if I can get into a space where I can, and this is to make it practical, and this is why I thank Amita for her, her example. If I'm willing to sit in a room and allow myself to be present to someone else's story, my brain for a moment does not know whether or not that is their story or my story. It's why when we start to yawn, we see other people yawn, you start to yawn, right? You see someone yawning and you're like, oh, look, that person's yawning. I wonder if I have to yawn. Look, I'm yawning, right? And the reason that happens is because your brain goes, does that matter to me? Is it relevant? But if I'm not willing to be in the space of someone who can hold their own space and share their own story and their own trauma in a way that they've reconciled it, 
if I don't know how to do that for myself, just being present to other people's stories and reading really good books by people who are not white or male. So don't get Paul's book and don't get my book. Get someone else's book, okay? <laughs> get, get a lot of great books and don't ask your BIPOC friends what those books are. Google it, do your own work, okay? But if you can start to be in the space of someone sharing a story that's not your story, your brain is going to ask, does that matter to me? And you at least open the door up to diminishing that fight or flight response. It's really powerful. Yeah, you're retraining your brain. I, I kind of simplify it sometimes for folks with like just the, and again, this sounds simplistic, but the fruit of the spirit test, is there kindness? Is there gentleness? Is there patience? Is there love? And and if, because people have these ideas of God, um, and if you're just to, to kind of kind of underscore what you're already saying, um, we hear the fruit of the spirit and we think that's how, what we're supposed to put out toward other people. And again, that's very managerial. I need to be kind. I need to be good. I need to be patient. And, and I'm always, the more you can learn to connect to the parts, the, the broken, weary, run down, aching, traumatized parts of your own soul, gently, patiently, kindly, the angry parts of your soul, the, you know, all the parts of you that are angry at God, the parts of you that are angry, whatever it is, gently, patiently, kindly, the more you're going to be able to, your spaciousness expands to hold that kind of space for the hurting person in front of you at the end of the day. And I mean, you, you started off by saying, you know, yeah, why do people get so big and so angry? And, and I don't know. I mean, I think the more I can encounter my own anger with gentleness, which sounds sort of weird, but it's really that it's really, it's, oh, of course I'm angry. It's very different from oftentimes what occurs within us is this polarization of I'm so angry and I hate it, <laughs> right? I don't want to feel versus I'm so angry and I, I'm, I'm, I can befriend that. I can be gentle with that. I can, it's this weird shift. And the more we do it for ourselves, the more expansive we sit and we don't project on to the person in front of us that's in that anger. We don't try to calm them. We don't try to, we, oh, that's, let's behold that together. That That's sort of the underscoring, I think, of what you're saying, of what that can look like. But it does start with how we extend that, that gentleness toward our own brokenness, toward the parts of us, or, or just the parts of us that feel so fragmented and so far um, from where we want to be. And that brings us to the end of part one of my panel on Jesus and trauma for the podcast episode 100. Hit the show notes and you will find links to all of these guests' resources and their social medias and so on so you can go and follow them. If you are loving this, please would you consider supporting the show? I right now am looking for 15 to 16 more supporters so that I can start offering transcribed audio for everybody. So if you are in a position to give $3 a month or more, you can go to patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle, become a patron today, and you'll be helping me get to that goal. I need 70 patrons in total, and I'm around 55 right now, so I just need a few more to get there, and then I can start offering transcribed audio for everybody, including folks who are hearing impaired, some of which have been asking me for this, and I'd love to provide it. So head over to patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle if you feel moved to give, 
be super, super thankful. And come back next week for the second part of this discussion. And it is intense. Grace and peace to you all. We'll see you soon.